Matthew 5, verse 38. It says, you've heard that it was said, and recall, successively through this section, he's been pulling sections of the Old Testament, accepted teaching from the Old Testament, and then helping them to see it with new eyes, because people had been reading it incorrectly. He says, you've heard that it was said, and now he quotes from the Old Testament, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So that expression, to turn the other cheek, this is where it comes from. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go within two miles, give to the one who begs from you, and do not uh, refuse the one who would borrow from you. Well, what Jesus does here is he cites a law which which crops up a few times in in the Old Testament, in, in in the Torah. This eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth law. And it was um, a law which was given for good reason. You think when you're setting up a legal code for a society to operate, you need justice. So a few of the contexts where it crops up. One is when you, you strike a woman who's pregnant. And if she, um, as a result, uh, were to give birth and the child were to, to die, um, this is where it's cited, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's one of the passages that you look to to um, give support to the sanctity of life, even unborn life, and why Christians believe that this is not something we can just um, dismiss as a non-life. Um, and then there's another passage where it talks about if you, if you kill or injure someone, or indeed if you even kill an animal, that restitution should be made, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And then lastly, there's another passage where it says, if you were to go into a court of law, and uh, you're to swear that you're going to give true testimony, and then you lie with the intention that the accused will be found guilty, whatever punishment effectively would fall on them should instead fall on you because you, you meant them harm. It says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And then Jesus says, I say to you, do not resist the evil one. And it throws up all kinds of issues. Because when you think about this law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, I think all of us intuitively feel that that is just. It's just, and because it's just, it's satisfying, isn't it? There's something so satisfying about justice, isn't there? That's why I think we all love um, films like Taken, where uh, it's like... How does it go? I'm sure some of you actors have memorized and practiced this speech in front of the mirror many times. You know it, Brandon? He's pretending he doesn't. You know the one. I will find you and I will kill you. Liam Neeson. (laughs) (laughs) There's more to it than that. It's delivered with more gravitas than that. Anyway. There's something so wonderfully satisfying about justice. I used to watch the film Rob Roy many times when I was a kid because after all this injustice and injustice and injustice with this evil character who just loved to hate, in the end Rob Roy gets his vengeance and plunges his sword down through his neck and into his heart. It's the most gruesome death. And at that moment, you just want to cheer and shout. There's something that's so powerful about justice, isn't it? That it grabs you and you know intuitively this is how the universe ought to work. There ought to be, you know, people say it, don't they? What goes around comes around. 
or um, they believe in some kind of cosmic karma. We all love and believe in justice. And uh, it was also just very useful in society. To have a law like this, it would stop blood feuds developing where your neighbor does something to you and then it begins to escalate and escalate to the level of just, um, you know, all-out war between families and clans and so on. The idea was not that this was a, a, a personal retaliation, that if someone hurts your eye, you personally go and dig out their eye. Um, the idea was rather that it be deferred to the courts of law and it would stop, it would settle the issue once and for all. So it was a good law, a very good law. And Jesus says, but I say to you, do not resist the evil one. And we've got to figure out how we're going to handle this and how we understand this for us as Christians. I want to begin with a few negatives, what I don't think it means. Then we're going to kind of dive into the text and look at the four examples that he gives. And then by the end, I want to just draw it all together and help you see how the threads come together for us as Christians. Let me begin with some of the negatives. What it doesn't mean. I think, first of all, that this is not pacifism. I haven't entirely made up my mind on what I think about pacifism in general. I think I lean towards the idea that it's okay to serve in the army and it's okay in certain circumstances for nations to defend themselves and take arms and so on. Um, I know not all Christians agree with that. And some Christians will want to build a view of non-retaliation, even at that level, upon these verses. And I, I don't think that that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's really talking, isn't he, at the level of the individual. And he's thinking really about personal relationships. So he's thinking about stuff that would touch you in your day-to-day life. Not so much the issues that are affecting Britain at large, or your city, or those sorts of things. So I don't think that this is, that he's preaching pacifism. I also don't think that what he's advocating here is a kind of blind apathy for the situations of injustice that are going on around you. I think the Bible gives strong support for the cause of justice in the world. And that we are called, especially as Christians, those who see a morality that's given to us by God, who understand justice as something that He's instilled in the world, and the value of human life, that our calling is to fight for these things. And that Jesus isn't wanting to dismiss that. So I'm, I saw a friend of mine yesterday, a guy called Ryan Rass. And Ryan is one of the humblest guys I know. He's, and um, he's, not, he's not particularly tall either. And that's part of what I'm about to tell you. So um, <laughs> a few years ago, it came to my... I, I learned by the by, not from Ryan, but through, through the grapevine as you do, that some months previous to that, Ryan had been... Um, in a, in a situation where he'd witnessed someone shoplifting. And um, it, it, it was an intimidating situation. And immediately, almost instinctively, his, his sense of justice kicked into gear. And this was in Covent Garden. He chased one of the, the men down and rugby tackled him to the ground, which is surprising when you meet Ryan because he's the gentlest, sweetest guy you've ever met. And he won't tell anyone. But apparently the Met Police awarded him a medal for bravery. And I think... Jesus is not, like, Jesus isn't saying here, like, if you see someone shoplifting in a shop, just ignore it and just say, why don't you take the rest of the clothes? Because we're called to sort of uphold justice in the world around us, aren't we? Um, You know, this week we heard, as Naomi was talking about in her prayer, the situation of Planned Parenthood and the body parts of babies. And obviously 
I mean, I couldn't get it out of my mind for a couple of days, and it all sort of erupted into this, this blog post, which I'm sure some of you read. And um, it, I'll tell you that I'm not. It, it, so far, this post um, has been seen 21,000 times, which I'm not telling you that to boast. Because usually they get read 20,998 times less than that. Um, because only my, my parents subscribe to my blog. So um, it's not, I don't think it's anything particularly to be boastful about. But I think what, what, what took, uh, caught people's attention, and it just got shared and shared on Facebook, was, that, um, was the, the sense of indignancy in the language I was using. It was very strongly worded. And I think people love a little bit of... Um, you know, they love some strong language now and then, don't they? And so it kind of captures people's uh, imagination, their emotions. And obviously that then made me reflect, you know, when a lot of people are out there reading stuff, you suddenly think, was what I wrote the right thing to write? And even now I'm, I'm not quite decided if I'm going to leave it up there. <laughs> it might have to come down at some point. But, um, and before you go on your smartphones reading my post, you can save it for later, okay, guys? Um, <laughs> The point that I'm trying to bring you back to is this, though, that even if what I said was strongly worded, you know, I I don't take from what Jesus is saying here that we can look at situations of injustice in the world like abortion and be indifferent or apathetic to it. That's not what he's advocating here. So it's not a blind apathy. And to be apathetic is to be unloving, isn't it? When you see injustices perpetrated against others around you and you don't do anything about it, that's unloving and apathetic. And that's not what Jesus is talking about here. It's not pacifism. It's not apathy. And I would say also, it's not, it's not, he's not trying to lay down a new set of laws here. So that in a, some kind of rigid, legalistic way, um, if you find yourself, I would say, strangely in one of these situations, because they're not the kind of situations that we face on a day-to-day basis. They're very contextual. But let's say someone does happen to slap you on the cheek. It's not like you've got to beg them to slap your other cheek because otherwise Jesus is going to judge you. I don't think we're meant to take it in a rigid way and understand that these are four new laws for the conduct of how we ought to live in this world. So um, Martin Luther apparently uh, talked about someone who he called a crazy saint who let the lice nibble at him and refused to kill any of them on account of this text, maintaining that he had to suffer and could not resist evil. Interesting, isn't it? You imagine that. That the lice are nibbling away at his body and he's not allowed to stop them because Jesus says, do not resist the evil one. So we need to be clear. Like, there are all kinds of ways you can take texts like this that just rip it out of context and do, do an injustice to what Jesus is saying here. Let's now dive in and consider the examples that he does give. There's four of them. Four cases, four examples. The first is this. He says, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, I think probably most of us, myself included, have assumed that this is to do with being in a situation of violence where you're physically assaulted. And obviously, there is a physical element here. But actually, if you understand a little bit of the the context into which Jesus is speaking, a backhanded slap on the cheek was not something that was designed to sort of knock you out or hurt you or cause you to fall on the ground or leave you with a black eye. The intent was to insult you. So what Jesus is talking about here is something that you and I ought to to be familiar with, depending on how annoying you are, is being insulted from time to time. I've had my fair share of being insulted. 
That's what Jesus is talking about here. Um, you know, I, and I guess, in a way, that's not something, the slap on the cheek is not something we're particularly familiar with, um, except in sort of Audrey Hepburn movies, and, you know, it doesn't really happen in real life, does it? But to find yourself in a situation where you're being insulted, that's what Jesus is talking about here. And it, it forces you to ask questions. How do you react when, when people intentionally embarrass you? Or when they criticize you publicly? How do you react when you're shamed? This is what Jesus wants you to, to recall, to think about. Is there any of us who've never experienced that? Of course we have. The question is, are you, are you humble in that scenario? That not only can you take one criticism, you can take another. And that you will, as he said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, to be meek. You'll be meek. This isn't something that Jesus himself wasn't willing to do. In Isaiah 50, it says of him, or he's speaking... In the first person, he says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheek to those who pull out my, the beard. To pull out the beard was a way of insulting a person. He says, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Jesus Christ was scorned and mocked. He was spat upon. He was insulted. And rather than returning like for like, he allowed more of the scorn to fall upon him. So when he says here, present your other cheek, he's only telling us to do something that he himself, especially when he went to the cross, was willing to go through. The second example he gives here is this. He says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, remember The context here is about being wronged. So I don't think that he's talking here about being sued in a just way. So you injure a person and then you get sued for it. You ought to take that. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. I think it's even more challenging than that. It's when you haven't done wrong and a person wants to pull you up in front of um, the justices. That's the kind of situation he's talking about here. And he... He wants to shock his hearers because the example he gives here about if someone sues you for your tunic, which is the kind of undergarment, like your underwear, he says, let them have your cloak as well. And I know for us, in the age of disposable, you know, Primark clothing, it doesn't really have the same resonance, does it? But you've got to understand, in Jesus' context, most people would only have one garment that they wore. So we're talking about something that's exceedingly expensive, not because it's like a Louis Vuitton cloak or something, but because these things were handmade. And from the very weaving through to the uh, construction of the garment, these things were very expensive. Um, You you remember how one of the gospel writers remarks about how Jesus had a a robe without a seam in it. This was a very expensive item of clothing. And uh, he only had one of them. It wasn't like he went around with a backpack full of robes. So these things, he's wanting us to understand that this is something that really costs you something. In the Old Testament, there are a number of times when there's case law built up around, um, you know, what happens when you get into debt? Um, How do you repay someone? And one of the ways you can repay them is by giving 
your cloak. And there's an examples a number of times. But in Exodus 22, it says, If you lend money to any of my people who's poor, um, you shall not be like a moneylender to him and exact interest from him. If you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For it's his only covering. It's his cloak for his body. And what else can he sleep? And if he cries to me, I'll hear to him for I'm compassionate. So Jesus wants us to hear, when, he, when we're reading this example, that we're talking here about your most precious possessions. And if, if such an injustice were to come your way that someone tries to take them all off you, we're talking about very extreme examples here. This isn't something tame. This is really something that would touch you. And again, Jesus is not talking here about a situation that he was not himself willing to face. I mentioned to you how he went to the, the, the cross and how his robe, that seamless robe, was taken from him. He would have been crucified naked, or at the very most, he would have just worn a loincloth around his waist. And again, this is written about in the scriptures. It says, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Jesus was suffering a great injustice here. So when he's speaking to his disciples and saying, these are the situations in which I want you to be meek, he's not talking about a situation that he himself was not willing to face. But his robe was taken from him. It was gambled for among the soldiers. Jesus faced these injustices himself. He gives us a third example If anyone forces you to go one mile, go within two miles. Now again, you've got to understand a little bit of what we're talking about here. How can somebody force you to go to walk with them a mile? Well, the answer is that, as you know, Palestine, where Jesus was preaching, um, the Jewish people, they were under Roman rule. And a Roman soldier, the occupying force, could come along to you at any point, no matter what you're doing, any time of day, And if he's on his way somewhere, he can demand that you walk with him a mile, carrying his bag for him. Can you imagine what it's like for a normal citizen to experience this inconvenience? You could be on your way to go and buy food for dinner at the market, and then a Roman soldier demands that you walk a mile with him, and then you've got to walk a mile back. So you're taking a two-mile detour, at least 40 minutes. And Jesus is saying to people, of course this situation is unjust. But I don't want you to just walk a mile. I want you to walk two miles. I want you to walk an hour and a half or, or around there with this soldier. To experience this injustice to the full. And again, this is a situation that we see happening around the crucifixion of Christ. Where it says that language, if anyone forces you to go one mile, the better translation is that they commandeer you. There's only one other place in the New Testament where that word occurs. And it's when Jesus is going and carrying his cross up to Golgotha where he's going to be crucified. These things were not light. And he's already been flogged and his flesh is is ripped and he's bleeding and he's weak. And the Roman soldiers, they commandeer the same thing. They commandeer a man called Joseph of Arimathea to come and help him carry his cross up to Golgotha. It's amazing, isn't it, how all these examples, they just have resonance with what happened to Jesus on the day he was crucified. 
And then there's this last example. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. How many of you have walked down one of London's streets and seen a homeless man and had this text come to mind as you've walked past? Well, you may be relieved that I actually don't think that it's talking about that scenario, but that's not an excuse not to help them because there's plenty of other scriptures. But anyway, you've got to think, in this passage, Jesus is talking about being wrongfully treated, isn't he? He's talking about injustices. He's talking about situations in which everything in you wants to cry out for justice, that this is wrong. And in what kind of a situation would somebody be asking you for money or asking you to borrow things in which it would be unjust? I think it would be a situation where this person has done it before and they've never repaid you or they've never given back to you. It could be a family member who just seems to have a knack for sponging off the rest of the family or always getting themselves into financial trouble. I think Jesus is wanting us to see the situation as a situation in which everything in you would cry out, no, I don't want to give you a penny. We have to understand that it calls upon deeper resources than just compassion. It calls upon grace. It calls upon mercy. These are the examples that Jesus is wanting you to see. Now, with this particular one, we've got to take it, as with all the examples, I think, with a bit of balance with a bit of understanding of the context and, 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 and some wisdom and guidance from the Holy Spirit in these kinds of situations. I tell you that because there's a couple of places in the New Testament where we're given instructions that, where people should not be allowed to just sponge off us for free. So one of the examples is for widows in 1 Timothy 6, where Paul says, you know, if they're, really, if they're a young widow, remember a widow would have relied on her husband's living. He says if they're a young widow, they shouldn't suddenly just become reliant on the church's funds. Instead, they should get remarried. And he says it a couple of times. He says, otherwise they'll just learn to be idlers, these young women whose husbands have very unfortunately died early. They'll learn to be idlers and busybodies going from house to house and, and uh, not, basically not contributing much to society. And then he says a little bit more, with a little bit more pointed language in 2 Thessalonians. Um, I guess they were, they were facing situations where some of the guys in the churches were uh, basically, probably too spiritual to work, and um, you know, not wanting to go and and, and sweat a, a drop of sweat to earn a day's wages. And these guys think of themselves as so spiritual, so godly that they ought to be supported by the church to not do anything. And uh, and Paul says, you know, very bluntly, he says, um, "If a man shan't work, he shan't eat." I'm trying to find the verse. He says, "Even when we are with you." We would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So he says, don't let a person become unhelpfully dependent upon the rest of the church community. Um, because he says, we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. And now, we, now such persons, we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So what I'm trying to show you is that with all these examples, there's, there's a sense of balance that we ought to have as Christians. We're not meant to take them rigidly. We're not meant to take them always in black and white. Jesus often taught with extremes. He often taught with exaggeration. He often taught with hyperbole. He wants us to be shocked. He wants us to see ourselves in these kinds of situations and be provoked. But the point here with this is that the onus is on you to check your heart, to check your spirit. That whereas you might have easily dismissed a request for money or a request to borrow something, he doesn't want you to so easily judge another person or, or move on from the request. 
So the questions are, do you get angry when people ask things from you? Do you judge those who you consider wasteful? And, and do you only want to help people who you, know, you consider, in brackets, to be deserving? These are the kind of questions that he's provoking. Now, I want to just help us to, to take a step back now from the detail here and consider how, how we can take this and apply it in more situations than these. Because the, the chances are that you're not going to meet many of these situations very often. Three things that I think you need to keep in mind. The first is this. We need to keep in mind that this is the gospel in action. Christ himself suffered injustice on your behalf. Christ himself was spat upon. He was beatily uh, He was bruised and beaten and brutally attacked. He was mocked. He was scandalized. And ultimately, he was crucified. So when Christ is talking here about turning the other cheek and being insulted and being hurt and being attacked, he is talking about stuff that he has himself was willing to go through on your behalf. I think you can only live out what Christ is talking about here when you have experienced the full weight of what Jesus did for you. That when you fully understand and grasp that Christ gave himself for you in the most unjust situation, the blameless dying on behalf of the, the blameworthy, you and I, that the weight of what he's saying can sink in and change your perspective. Now, I know some of you might push back and say, well, don't we see this kind of non-retaliation in many secular examples? I can think of a man like Gandhi. He made this kind of teaching, this flavor of teaching, the message of his life and the source of his political activism. Someone else who did the same and very much drew upon Gandhi's teaching was Nelson Mandela. And these men achieved an enormous amount through taking on board elements of this teaching and then putting it into secular context, even though it's questionable whether Mandela was a Christian and certainly Gandhi wasn't. But I want you to understand that there's a distinction here. That for those men, this was a strategy. But for the Christian, while it may have, as we'll see, a long-term benefit, that was never the primary reason why we we react like this to injustice and things done against us. The primary reason is because God has humbled us. That in confronting the cross and in confronting what Christ has done, the perfect on behalf of you and me, the imperfect, God has forced us to see how undeserving we are of His love and grace and mercy. So that when we now find ourselves in situations where injustices are being done against us, our first reaction ought not to be to cry out for revenge. Our first reaction ought to be to cry out for God to bless those who are hurting us. And my contention is that I think that is only possible 
when you have become a Christian, in other words, when you have fully, truly grasped what Jesus did for you on the cross. I think even Gandhi and even Mandela, as great a men as they were, did not plumb the depths of what this is really about. Because it's not just a strategy for world transformation. It's the fruit of a heart that's been changed by Jesus Christ. You can see this going on in, in the scriptures. Let me read to you from 1 Peter 2. And look how you see the parallels with what we're talking about here and what Peter says. He says, For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Can you see the connection there? He's saying Christ's suffering, as much as it was just to, to achieve something once and for all for you, for you, you can never you can never repeat what Jesus did for you on the cross. And yet it also stands there as an example for us in history for what we are called to do. He says you're meant to walk in those same steps. That you are meant to self-consciously take upon yourself the mantle of what it means to walk through injustice in the way that Christ did. He says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, and when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And Peter's point is, that is how Christians are meant to conduct themselves in the world. We're not meant to be the people who are fighting for our rights, who are always at war with others when we feel that we've been mistreated or insulted or abused. We're the people who are willing, because Christ has given us the strength to endure it, to to walk under injustice and to walk under suffering. And in so doing, to walk in the same steps that Christ did when he walked all the way to Golgotha. And I suppose then the question is, if you think this is too too difficult a thing, the question is, well, are you a Christian? Do you remember how in in the Bible it tells us that to be a Christian is to be a person who has been touched by the power of the Holy Spirit to change you from the inside? You don't change yourself. God changes you. And then you begin to see the fruit of that. And the fruit of the Holy Spirit is listed for us as things like this, of love, joy, peace, patience. What I want you to see is that this this path is only possible to walk when you've given your life to Christ and when His Holy Spirit has come in and invaded your life and begun to change you. This is gospel-shaped living. This is living out the gospel in demonstration in the world around us. Second thing we need to think about is this, that this also is faith in action. And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean, I mean this, that to allow yourself to be the victim of injustice is to entrust God to work things out in the end. That's how Paul explains it in Romans 12. He puts it like this. He says, repay no one evil for evil. Remember, this is the same teaching that Jesus taught. He says, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, 
never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So when we're trying to consider, where, where does this teaching come from for Jesus, when he's, this teaching about non-retaliation? The answer is, it comes from a, a theology of God being a just God who will work all things out in the end. And you might think, well, that sounds like an utter contradiction, doesn't it? That on the one hand, we're meant to present as people who are full of love and grace and mercy. That when we suffer injustice, we want people to be blessed. And on the other hand, we're secretly hoping that in the end, the Lord is going to smite them. <laughs> now, you've got to understand that the offer of the gospel, the offer of love, the offer of grace, the offer of God's forgiveness, which we are then called to also offer to people in the way we conduct ourselves in the world, only can only possibly make sense on the backdrop of the reality of God's anger against sin and the reality that he will punish it in the end. If you withdraw God's judgment from the equation and have no real theology of what will happen after death when people meet him, or even in this life, because God doesn't promise not to intervene here and now, to work out his justice on the earth. If you don't believe that, then how does, the, how does the offer of God's grace and love and mercy make any sense? It can only make sense against a backdrop of a kind of or else situation. So while I think that we are called to live for, just, for, for God's grace to be extended in the world, we do it with the bedrock confidence that ultimately God is going to work all things out and bring about justice in the world. And in fact, I don't think it's wrong to pray that God would do that. We love righteousness. We pray and cry out that God will deal with the problem of evil in the world. And the problem of evil cannot be solved if you take God and his justice out of the equation. Without God, without the prospect that evil is going to meet its maker, not its maker, but evil people will meet their maker, then ultimately you just have evil acts becoming meaningless in the end. But when we know that God is going to deal with things in the end, we can have a bedrock confidence that all of the injustices we see in the world will be dealt with. And Christians need not be ashamed of that confidence. We need not hide this or, or pretend that we don't believe in a vengeful God. We absolutely do. But this same God is the one who offers people a chance for forgiveness, a chance for mercy. And he offers it to you today. If you look at your life and you say, I know that there's stuff in me that God is displeased with. Friend, you have a chance on this day to be made right with God. Lastly, I believe that we're called to a confidence that Christ's way is better because Christ's way will reap good rewards in the end. What do I mean? Well, remember how, as I mentioned last week, that one of the, the notes that sort of stands over, or so, that kind of sets the tone for the whole of the sermon is that he's called you to be salt and light in the world. And so it's within that context that he says, listen, when you experience injustice, one of the ways that you can be salt and light, one of the ways that you can be a witness to who Christ is and the message of the gospel is by accepting injustice against you with grace and with love and mercy. And the power of that is that people will take note. 
when you're a person who embodies the meekness that Jesus is describing here, people will notice. They will be challenged and they may well be transformed by it. And that doesn't just happen at the level of the individual. It also happens at the level of whole societies at times when Christians have taken this stuff seriously. In that passage where Paul says, quotes that passage, vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. He goes on and writes, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by, by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. And then he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When you think of our great calling to bring the kingdom of God into the world by preaching the gospel and embodying it in our conduct... It is exactly these kinds of moments that work extraordinary transformation in the world. I think about the example of um, Martin Luther King. And I just want to read you what John... Actually, it's not John Stott's own... He's quoting someone else, quoting a man called Benjamin Mays. But he said this about Martin Luther King. Remember, he was fighting the injustices of, uh, of racism institutionalized racism in the United States. And uh, one of his great notes was this note of non-retaliation. And it says this about him. It says, if anyone knew the meaning of suffering, King knew. House bombed, living day by day for 13 years under constant threats of death maliciously accused of being a communist, falsely accused of being insincere, stabbed by a member of his own race, slugged in a hotel lobby, jailed over 20 times. Can you imagine that? Being thrown into jail 20 times. He was only breaking unjust laws. Occasionally deeply hurt because friends betrayed him. And yet, this man had no bitterness in his heart. No rancor in his soul, no revenge in his mind, and he went up and down the length and breadth of this world preaching nonviolence and the redemptive power of love. Friends, I don't know what you're facing right now, and it may be the case that your life is pretty sunny at the moment, but sooner or later we will all meet situations where we will be tested on this fact. And I think it's so important to keep in mind the bigger picture of these three things in particular. That we're called to embody the gospel, to walk in Christ's footsteps. That we do it in faith that God is going to bring about justice in the end and that we are not called to rectify all the rights and the wrongs in the world. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But with this knowledge, that when we so embody Christ in our conduct... The power is extraordinary. Martin Luther King overturned the injustices of the United States. And while the fruit of that is still being worked out in practice, we praise God for a Christian man. He wasn't perfect, but a Christian man who took this stuff seriously and taught others to do the same. And this is what Jesus wants of us as his disciples. He wants you to hear his words and he wants you to take it seriously. He wants you to examine your heart. He wants you to look inside and see if there's vengeance, if there's anger and bitterness against others. 
Are you holding grudges against other people? Do you find yourself thinking of ways to make other people's lives miserable because they've made your life miserable, even if it's in undiscovered secret ways? Do you wish other people harm? And Christ says, listen, I want you to not repay anyone evil, not even to resist evil. We're called to pour goodness onto them. And isn't that one of the most striking things from these verses? That it's not only to sit back and let bad things happen to you. It's to go over and above and to bless them. To go the second mile. To turn the other cheek. In order that Christ will be glorified. And seen visibly in your conduct.